This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi, good morning. And uh, did I say I did say daughter too? How are you today, dear? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good, good. Things are going uh, well. We went to uh, cousin Aunt Belle's funeral and uh, saw the family, and it's been a tough time, as you said. Uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about Belle losing the two boys. I get a kind of emotional when I think about it. Well, for those of you that don't know, we, we talked about it on our last show. Um, my brother and cousin died together in a traumatic accident when the car that my cousin Matthew was driving in hydroplaned. It hit the side of a bridge and it blew up. So both of my brother and my cousin suddenly died at age 17. And Matthew, my cousin, had a mom named Aunt Belle, my Aunt Belle, who was my mother's first cousin. I hope this isn't getting too confusing and her very best friend, and they grew up together as neighbors and as kind of soul sisters, I think. And my Aunt Belle died a couple of days ago, so it's been a really, really emotional time for our family. And it's, it's weird to lose my Aunt Belle because my Aunt Belle, to a certain extent, connects me with my brother and cousin. I know that sounds odd, but, you know, she knew them and she loved them, and, of course, it was her son that died. And I said on our last show... She always said that the last thing her son said to her before he left that night to go to a movie, before he died, was see you at dawn. And I honestly feel that this is her dawn and that she is with Scott and Matthew and it must have been one hell of a reunion. (laughs) That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Absolutely. Well, Heidi, uh, (laughs) we've got a great guest and a friend on the show today. And do you want to introduce Jill? I am so honored to have Jill on because she is one of my very good friends, and she is doing incredible, incredible things with her life. Very, uh, she's involved in a very groundbreaking study right now, which she will talk to us about. But she is an amazing example of someone that has transformed her life after loss, and it was the loss of her husband, and I will tell you a little more about her. Uh, her name is Dr. Jill Harrington-Lamori, and she is a senior field researcher on the National Military Family Bereavement Study and former director of professional education at TAPS, and she is a surviving military spouse. Jill has extensive experience working with individuals and families affected by crisis, trauma, and loss, both as a peer and a professional. She resides in Alexandria, Virginia, with her two children, and her hobbies include riding her Harley Davidson. Hey, Jill, welcome to the show. Hi, Heidi and Gloria. Thanks for having me today. It's great to have you on, and you and Heidi, Heidi mentioned TAPS, a Tragedy Assistance Program um, yes. with Bonnie Tragedy Carroll. Assistance. Yeah, yeah. Bonnie. Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. For Survivors, yeah. and Bonnie Carroll runs that program. Fabulous women, and Heidi and uh, Jill get together, and occasionally I'll do something with them for the military families. Really great. Well, Jill, talk about how your loss and, and what happened to you with your husband and sure. the military. Yeah, so in 2007, my husband and I had been married um, at a college, and uh, we had two children together. And, um, you know, when most people think of military deaths, I often think of combat-related deaths. Or now, these days, of course, with the high incidences of suicide, you see often a lot of 
um, publicity about suicide in the military. My husband died suddenly of an illness overseas, um, and my children and I were both living in, you know, we were living in the States, and it was Ash Wednesday in 2007, and um, I was supposed to hear from him the next morning, and I was uh, crossing to go into my home. Um, I'd just gotten back. It was Ash Wednesday, rushing off to get my ashes, and um, I'd crossed my front lawn, and I saw this white truck in front of my house, and I kind of made note of it, and as I was crossing my front lawn, um, I all of a sudden saw, and I could still play it in my head this stage, almost like a movie reel, um, when people have kind of suffered, you know, we know that death notification in and of itself can be a very primary traumatic experience for people. And if you talk to most survivors that have been, you know, experienced death notification, whether in the military or police or firemen, um, you know, oftentimes you could replay that moment in your head with almost pinpointed accuracy. And um, for me, as I was walking across the front lawn, I, ta- I saw two men get out of the, um, this white truck and since we had been married for a very long time, and my husband had been a Keiko twice, which is a casualty assistance officer, and also, you know, being in the Navy, going out to sea, that was his job, really, to be on ships, was often a dangerous job. From a young age, he'd always told me that if you ever see two men that come to the home and one of them is not me, it means I'm dead. So, you know, perfectly healthy, talking the day before, and I'm crossing my lawn, I see these two men get out of a truck, and... You know, like in slow motion, I could see their covers be put over their head. And as I looked them both in the eye, um, I just started saying to them, um, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. And I just started walking backwards. I fell back on the stoop of my house. I put my hand down, and there was a Valentine's Day package uh, sent to the kids and I with um, basically in his handwriting. So um, that for us kind of changed our lives since 2007. And uh, being a social worker for many years, um, uh, working in oncology as well as working on Project Liberty and uh, working in grief, loss, and bereavement for many years, I was very fortunate at the time that I had a lot of support through friends and I had to step through a lot of young loss with people. You know, I worked on a bone marrow transplant unit where I was planning funerals with mothers who knew they were dying and leaving young children. Wow. But when so, happened... Yeah. Yeah, so when this happens to you, though, it doesn't matter how much professional experience you have, it's still your own personal loss. Right. It sounds familiar because I was working at a hospital uh, when Scott was killed uh, on a burn unit and on, you know, an intensive care and all sorts of things. And I worked with a lot of families where there was grief and loss. So it seems like God prepares us in a way. But like you said, uh, when it happens to you, you realize what a visceral, physical what an incredible uh, experience it is. It's unbelievable. I just wanted to say that your husband died of an aneurysm, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah. P- yeah, a PE, yeah. Yeah, pulmonary aneurysm. It's almost like, in a, you know, I hear Jill's story, and I hear, I know your story, Mom. It's, it's in my own story. Literally, to have these traumatic losses where these guys are in the prime of their lives and they're suddenly dead, it, it is an assault to the system. It really is. It is. And, you know, I work both in, and I never say who, you know, whose ice is colder. And oh, I like that, it. whose ice is colder. That, that, <laughs> that is, is a good true, analogy. Yeah. 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 yeah, I actually learned that from a mother, um, of, um, a mother whose child was murdered at uh, the age of 19. And she said, you know, nobody's ice is colder. And, um, you know, I learn a lot from my experience with people who have lost other, you know, people in their lives. I've learned so much from them, from other survivors. I take that with me. But, um, 
you know, I have worked in anticipated, you know, people were anticipating dying and sudden loss. And, you know, for folks, if, if there's an anticipated death, the loss doesn't, it still doesn't matter when you lose somebody that you love and you're have an attachment to or, you know, is part of your family. It doesn't matter um, if there's anticipation, if you're, you know, accepting the reality of that person's dying. However, that, you know, when there's anticipated loss, if you accept the reality, you can do some of the grief work ahead of time. Well, you can, yeah, you can also do some of the planning. Uh, You know, you're not just dropped, dropped in. But don't you think when you hear the words, they're dead or they're gone or whatever, wow. It, uh, there's always it, hope. Powerful. There's always hope. Yeah, well, talk, talk a little. And I think with, yeah, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about um, military versus non-military deaths. Sure, sure. So why I bring up that story is that, you know, for the majority of us, our deaths are sudden. Um, mm-hmm. Even though they may be anticipated in some sense, depending on your spouse's or your child's career, they can't. They are not often expected, but we suffer majority, a hundred percent, almost sudden deaths in active duty service, as well as violent, very violent deaths. Right, because they're young. So they're young men, right? Most of yeah, them are young. The majority. I mean, they're, they're they're women too. So if you look and at American women, yeah. society, yeah, if you look at American society, eighty percent of most deaths are of natural causes, and there are people fifty-five and older. So as we grow and we age and we develop, death becomes an expected part of our development. Not that we don't grieve, but it becomes sort of something you begin to anticipate as you get older. When someone dies suddenly and before their time and they're young, there's often you lose not only the past and the present with that person, but you also lose all your future hopes and dreams, just like you and Heidi did with the, the death of your son. Right. And well, what what are the issues for young widows out there? Because, boy, you sure know them. Um, we were just talking about how, you know, you're making your living, and you're on the road with this research, and you've got, how old are right. your kids? They're uh, 15 and 12, but they were 10 and 6 when their father died. And I think, number one, for widows or parents that that are uh, guardians of children or have other siblings, because our our population of service members, men and women, are very young, so oftentimes they have young siblings still in the home. If you have a 19-year-old that's killed, you have a parent who's left maybe raising a 10-year-old sibling. And I think for the majority of us, whether we're parents or widows, um, raising children, either siblings of or children of service members, I think the hardest thing is what to tell your children. Mm. And especially if you're, if you're kind of, this news is hijacked upon you very suddenly. Um, and there may be, with death notification, because there's a requirement, the military has a certain amount of time in which they have to notify families, um, Oftentimes, this is done on the spot, and children are present in the home or potentially present during death notification. I know a lot of times that siblings have answered the door. Wow. 19 and 22-year-olds with Marines have shown up at the home. But I think for um, for spouses, um, it depends because we're sort of um, in a community where those of us who have um, are left with children and those of us never had children. So I could talk a little bit about those two issues. So for me... Um, I snapped into I, I have to take care of my children mode. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there are many things that come along with a military death. There's a lot of paperwork you need to fill out. There's ceremonies you have to do. 
There's um, oftentimes people move because they're on bases and posts around the world, and they, you know, they can't stay there for a very long period of time, so they have to make decisions about moving. So all those things we tell people not to do in the first year, typically dependent military spouses and children have to do. They have to make decisions about moving. They have to deal with personal items. They might be dealing with line-of-duty investigations to look into benefits. You know, they have to be able to relocate their kids to different schools. And especially if they're anticipating the military as a way of life, and if they haven't been home since a young age, you know, it's like, where do I move from here? So Mm -hmm. oftentimes a lot of us who've been married for a long period of time don't automatically want to go back to our hometowns. So it's a matter of sort of finding your way and where you fit. Um, I like that. So you have to find your way and where you fit. That is a good for the military. Yeah. And you were working as a social worker, right, before? I was at the time. I was working as a social worker. And so for me, what I did was I, you know, found my local resources. I brought myself to... Um, a place in uh, where we were living that ran a tandem group. I think this is important for young widows and widowers and children. So I can go there while my children were also receiving group care. So we were doing it at the same time. And um, But there was some piece of it missing because I went to this group and most of the widows and widowers that were young who were civilians who had sort of a little bit more like nine to five husbands or wives um, whether they died suddenly or whether they died with anticipation, um, there was just something missing there because a lot of them would talk about their role changes. And, for instance, like some of the widows would talk about now having to take out the garbage. Some of the men would have to talk about, you know, taking care of children, writing checks or changing attire or things that as a military spouse, if you're in it long enough with your, with your spouse uh, as, as a widow, You've done these things. You could move five states away, have your children in school. Um, you're used to, the, I think the resilient factor in our community is that we are so accustomed to having to survive on our own. And it works for us and against us. How does it work against you? Because we can, it's, the for you is obvious. Sure. Mm-hmm. It works against us because oftentimes you're so used to being, um, your, your spouse being on deployment. Oftentimes, if they go to school, sometimes you'll live apart for several months, not having to relocate your kids and your family just for a six-month TDY assignment, which is temporary duty assignment. So you spend a lot of time alone, and you get very used to psychologically thinking that they're on assignment or they're on deployment Mm. or they're at war. So what you could do is we call it deployment delayed grief. You can just kick into that mode and say, you know what? I'm just going to kick into that mode that they're deployed or they're training, and the reality of the death doesn't set in for you. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking with uh, with uh, a lot of husbands that travel and that kind of thing, people could be having that same thing and not exactly identifying it. Uh, some people, you know, go over to uh, Iraq or Iran and work civilian or that kind of thing, yep. and and they wouldn't identify that. I, I love the fact that you've identified that. Have you got any Thank thoughts you. on that, Heidi? I love it, and I'm just thinking that your your kids are probably doing the same thing, right? Like, Daddy will eventually come home. He's just yeah. deployed again, or he's away again. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Especially a lot of, for a younger a lot of military ones, yeah. kids, A lot of military kids become accustomed to their father or mother, who's in active duty, really not spending a lot of time at home. So what happens is, is that it can kind of work against you as a family, because you could just kick into that mode that mom or dad isn't home anymore. So it could really delay 
your grieving process until, would you, you know, yeah. that would reality you, really sinks in for the family. Would you um, mention a little bit about having uh, a spouse die of natural, well, uh, not, nat- you know, natural yeah. causes, you yeah. want to say, having a pulmonary right. embolism, a physical right. cause rather than mil- than military? Right, sure, instead of unnatural causes where there's, um, in the military, um, oftentimes, um, you know, we have sort of, we do it to ourselves, and certainly um, we, we try to recognize the service of everybody and everyone who, who has died. And oftentimes, though, you, you hear a lot of attention related now to suicide deaths and combat-related deaths, as they, you know, as there is a high need in those communities. Um, but people in the military, because they're, they're young, they die of all different kinds of causes. We have folks that have had their, um, their soldiers murdered by another soldier, um, we've mm-hmm. had folks that have had active duty service members um, be out going to the grocery store and get, you know, killed in, a, in a, a random act of violence. We have had folks who have had service members who have died of heart attacks and strokes and embolisms very suddenly. Um, but oftentimes, military death, sometimes in our community, it's just ourselves recognizing that we need to recognize, most of us, when we join together, we join together on the loss. And oftentimes when you get enough military survivors together, for us it's really about the loss of our loved one. But I think the greater public community, when they think of military death, they often think of combat-related deaths and and suicides right now. And and I think that's why our study is so vitally important, because we're looking at, you know, military deaths encompass all those different circumstances of death. um, Right now in the military, um, still um, what tends to be, the highest uh, death rate are still from accidents, uh, training accidents and, you know, accidents with, you know, young pilots that are flying and planes that go down. And, um, you know, illness is up there, too, sudden illness, too. So mm-hmm. we kind of scope the broad range. And I think oftentimes though, the American public thinks that um, mainly of the, those combat-related deaths. Now, what kinds of uh, information will you get from this study? Um, from the study, well, this is the first uh, study in our nation's history. As, as you know, we're a country for the last two centuries. We've incurred 12 different wars, and we've looked at every other trauma, or we've begun to look at every other trauma um, and uh, in that affects families, that impacts families, but yet we haven't really looked at the impact of a service member's death on the family. We're recognizing that families grieve. So our goal of the study is really to gain a better understanding of the experience of loss for military surviving families. And what I think is very unique about this study, it's not only looking at bereavement from an individual's perspective, but it's also looking at bereavement from a family perspective, how that impact impacts the entire family. So our, our study includes um, uh, families of origin, which are parents and siblings, and we know that there's not a lot out there in terms of understanding sibling grief. And it would also is inclusive uh, for families of procreation, which are spouses, ex-spouses, adult partners, and children of deceased service members on or after 9-11 uh, regarding all circumstances of death. And I think why it's such an important study is not just to only understand military loss and the impact to the military community, but we know that military medicine sets the pace for or brings to greater society a lot of its fi- the findings that we find in battlefield medicine. And I'll give you just a short example. Is you know George Washington discovered the basically uh, that inoculations for smallpox 
Clara Barton in, in the Civil War discovered that we needed to triage people. Um, she really discovered triage and using clean um, using clean uh, napkins and stuff, things to uh, cloths to really um, to wipe off wounds on soldiers so that they wouldn't get infected. So you know, military medicine has broader implications to the rest of society, and we have only really just begun to understand violent traumatic and sudden death after 9-11, and we have very little information on how this also impacts families who have suffered a young adult loss. So I think, you know, 10% of deaths in American society are sudden violent deaths. 5% are violent. Um, And I think we have implications that could also help um, mothers whose children, mothers and fathers whose children have been murdered in American society, those who die by suicide, those who die by accidents and have a lot to understand about how young families grieve. So I hope that's been helpful. That, that's <laughs> great. That's going to be wonderful. Yeah, go ahead, I'm Heidi. Just gonna, I just want to chime in here because I'm so excited that you're looking at the sibling grief component, the sibling loss component. You know, that's, that's basically my sweet spot. And I am writing on a chapter on sibling grief right now in an oncology textbook, and it still floors me how little there is out there in the literature. And I've written, I've written, you know, a bunch of stuff, but, you know, there's still not enough. It's, there still needs to be so much more done on really understanding the impact of sibling loss and how it differs from other kinds of losses. So love that you're doing that. So, Jill, I, I'm sitting here now, and I'm thinking I'm out in the audience, and I'm thinking, wow, um, how, when will I be able to see this information? How will I know? Is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can read right now? Uh, is there, as an audience member, is there anything I could know? Sure. So right now we are looking, um, we're a five-year study, and um, we're into year two of our study, and we just actually begun to data collection. And um, number one is getting the word out to survivors. We need to hear the survivor voice. We need to hear from siblings. I mean, it's a hard group to access sometimes. We need to hear from parents. We need, if survivors want to be understood as military survivors, as a community, we need to take part in this research. And we've just um, posted our national, or the very first, again, in our nation's history, our national survivor questionnaire is online, and we're looking for 3,000 participants. And those participants can be parents, spouses, ex-spouses, adult partners, um, siblings, and any adult child over the, eight, over the age of 18 who has um, suffered the death of a service member in all components of the military on or after 9-11, and they have to be in active duty status. So getting the word out there about our website where you could take our survey which it's www.militarysurvivorstudy.org. Okay, so militarysurvivorstudy.org. And we will certainly try to get the word out, Jill. And thank you for everything you're doing. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, could just have a job where you stayed home and kind of did your social work thing, and you are willing to travel around and do all this. And I give you great kudos. Your uh, husband must be very proud of you. I know he's smiling, Dan. I'm I'm hoping, you know, that's part of it is a lot of us still carry on in our lives, service before self. And I think in our community, for me, if I didn't return back to the work that I loved, if I had changed my life so drastically, what gives me hope is returning back to the work I love, but also knowing that I am doing work that really just makes a difference in this community and also for bereavement overall. 
so and those of us survivors. So that leaves me open to a lot of hope. Oh, that's great. Thank you again for being on the show, Jill. No problem. Take care, Gloria and Heidi. Hope to see you on the road. Thank you, Jill. Love everything you're doing. And I love how mom Jill is turning in, turned her grief outward and is turning it into service and has so has made so much meaning out of this loss and is really trying to understand military loss and help others that have had these kind of losses find hope. I mean, I love to study the study. Yeah, it is, and it's very transformational, and uh, we will keep following up on this, and when we get some of Jill's results, we'll have her on again, and uh, please let everybody know uh, that has had a military loss uh, after 9-11 that this is available, because what a fabulous thing for, uh, I guess uh, Congress has given the money for this, I do believe. Is that right, Hyde? should have asked Jill about that, but... Well, it's a congressionally yeah, directed medical research project was- from the CDRMP. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. But yes, like you said, Mom, everybody out there that's had a military loss, please take the study and get involved because we need your voices. Jill needs your voices. The world needs Absolutely. your voices. Absolutely. So that we can create change in the interventions we are doing and really understand loss and how it impacts you if you are in the military and if you've had these kind of losses. Great. And so please tune in again next week for the Open to Hope show and visit us on Facebook and Twitter. And also, if you go on our website, you'll be able to access our radio shows. And also, we you can comment on our forums. So stay tuned. Thanks. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, Others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.